Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Rula and this is Rula Conversations. I'm joined today by James Start, Rula's roving photojournalist. We're going to be talking about the weather and also Belgium and bike racing and why these things are so connected, and also what they have to do with the latest edition of the magazine. And we'll also be hearing from our tech contributor, Dan Cavallari, who is interviewing Tom Hargreaves, the Associate Director of Connected Products Marketing at Zwift, about the Zwift Hub. So, James, it's Zwift Hub weather right now in the UK. It's a hard time of year for cyclists. It's the tail end of March, and it's unremittingly grey, chilly and damp. Um, but you wouldn't know anything about it because you're in the Caribbean. Yeah, well, you know, things happen. And I find myself uh, here uh, yeah, in the Caribbean and St. Bartholomew for a little break. And it's kind of uh, a mind trip to be thinking, I uh, get you all know, the people back in Paris saying, well, here it's, you know, we got garbage piling up from the strikes and it's, it's cold and gray and, you know, whatever. So it's kind of sometimes hard to remember what we usually live in when we're living in northern Europe, which is not this kind of sunny weather. But it's a great break, so I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. There's a famous news report which flew around the internet a few years ago from St. Louis in the, in the United States by a reporter called Kevin Killeen. He kind of deadpans about the bleakness of February. And he says, when all the colour is gone and life is stripped down to the starkness, it's February. But the other thing he says is that February is an honest month and it's a month that doesn't hold up life any better than it really is. But I also feel cheated when the weather's like it's in March, because March promises far more and often delivers less. So if any of our listeners can help with my seasonal affective disorder, do get in touch. And James, if you wouldn't mention the weather again from where you are in San Bartolome, that would be much appreciated. So, James, let's talk about the new edition of Rouleur. In fact, before we do that, let's talk about brief takeaways from the weekend's racing at E3 and Gembebelgum, because the two things are kind of related. What were your main takeaways from those two races? I want to take it back to Milan San Remo, you know, because each one of these races has been just amazing racing with really big hitters taking really big punches and coming up with different results. You know, I mean, 
around San Remo, Vanderpool was so good and so overwhelming. And then a couple, you know, days later, clearly got outclassed by Van Art, you know, and it was not clearly, but, you know, he did get out of Sprinter by Van Art for, so like one week ago, Matthew Vanderpool's dominating. This week it's Jumbo and history is being written. These are big riders dominating big races and really like not pulling any punches. E3 was spectacular in that sense, wasn't it? Because you had Wout Van Aert, Matteo van der Poel and Tadej Pogacar, three of the, you know, the four or five Galacticos of cycling at the moment, away and nobody could live with them. The hierarchy was clear. They went away very early again. You know, things started really kicking off maybe 80 kilometres to go on the Tyenberg and then those three got away and there's not really much anyone else can do about it. And then it's it's between them. I felt Pogacar was not going to win. I felt he doesn't have the weapons in a race like E3 to beat Van Aert and Van der Poel. And I think his only chance would have been to attack and for the other two to look at each other. But he basically attacked twice and they took turns in marking him, which brought it down to the sprint. And I've always thought, though Van Aert has got the more glittering Palmares as a sprinter, Mathieu Van der Poel has had the edge in big events between the two of them in that Tour of Flanders, which they contested in 2020, he beat out Van Aert in the finishing sprint. And then in the Cyclocross Worlds early on this year, he did the same. And I felt that it's a bit of a psychological hurdle to surmount for Van Aert. But he did it. I think he left it to the sprint. He dictated the sprint in a way that suited him by by going at it a long way out. And I think he was a very fair winner. And I think what that race might be is a tipping point between the dominance of Van der Poel earlier in the season and, you know, Van Aert really coming up now, probably his main target of the season, which would probably be the, the, the Tour of Flanders. So I thought E3, fascinating race, just for the fact those three killed everybody else, really. And then Ghent Vevelgem, more Jumbo Visma dominance. It was just Christoph Laporte and Wout Van Aert rode away from everybody on the Kemmelberg, and that was that. Yes, obviously. And that's Ghent Vevelgem. You know, for me, that's, you know, E3 is cool, but it's a midweek race. Ghent Vevelgem is... Near monument, it's like up there with Stradi Bianchi. These should really be considered monuments, you know, for different reasons. One's a modern classic, and one's a historic classic that has now been reinterpreted. It's almost the same distance as any of these other monuments. It used to be a 200-kilometer race. Now it's a 250-kilometer race, and it's on a weekend. It opens up the things for me. You know, Gent Velvelgem is a monument. So to give that away. <laughs> you know, okay, E3 has grown in popularity and prestige, but for me, you know, uh, Genf Elvogum's another level altogether. Be able to give that away just shows how strong those guys are. So were you exercised by Van Aert giving the race to Laporte? You know, is he going to regret it or not? I mean, it's great for Laporte. And at one point I'm going, boy, since this guy has, has signed on with Jumbo, he's really upped his game, you know, because he's not riding like he was when he was riding with Kofidis, right? And so now he's got, again, Vevelgem in his pocket. I mean, that's just, you know, when was the last time a French guy won Again, Velvogram or any classic at that level, huh? And he's got it. Okay, with a little help from his friend. But it's like back in the days with Mapai and Quickstep at the summit of their strength. They pick and choose a bit. They had just basically the strongest classics team out there. And on any given day, one of their guys could win or one of the, they could let another guy win. And they did that. And that's what we just saw happen again. So I'm slightly soft on this than you, James, I think. My perception of Velvogram is perhaps that it's growing into this weekend major classic role but you know in the past it was a, a midweek race 
sometimes came down to a bunch sprint and and it is evolving these days you know it's incorporated the gravel roads a few more punchy hills and multiple ascents of the Kemmelberg so it's very different beast than it was but it is still not a Tour of Flanders or a Paris-Roubaix or at the same level as those big races you know that you have the three grand tours the five monuments in the world so I think you wouldn't give those races away with Kemp Evelgem Van Aert obviously is motivated by the very biggest races and because of that this is putting hay in the hayloft he will have a better chance perhaps in the bigger races when he has the complete loyalty of his team and I'm fine with that cycling is a team sport it shows that he values his teammates and remember Laporte rode everyone else off his wheel in that race it was up to other riders from other teams in that race to follow them if they could and they couldn't so I was fine with that I, I, I felt that you know if Wout van Aert wishes to give it to a teammate because the two of them have trounced everybody else then it's fine I don't think he would do the same in the Tour of Flanders no I don't think you give arguably can give away again available them but you don't give away Flanders yeah for sure so that thudding noise you can hear is Rulo 118, the classics issue, hitting doormats across the UK and around the world. So, James, I'll always feel like New Magazine Day is a special one, and there's something about the tactility and feel of a magazine which does it for me in a way that words on a screen just don't. Absolutely. And each one of these magazines is so special and so unique, and we sit there and we just, how are we going to construct this one? How are we going to make this one original? How are we going to make this one special? And I did stuff in January... I did stuff in September that is is just going in this in this issue. I mean, it's been something we've been put building towards for months. Is a piece of art in its own. You know, the beautiful paper, beautiful layout, and then you know each one of these stories we really crafted. I'm really proud of just about everything we've done for every issue I've been involved in. It's really it's really really special. So we're deep in classic season, and the greatest race in the world, the Tour of Flanders, is coming up this weekend. And the greatest race in the world, Paris-Roubaix. I know you have your prejudices there, James, coming up the weekends afterwards. And the the magazine is themed around the classics and Belgium, Flanders especially. And I think I'd like to talk about the feature that we collaborated on, uh, James, which was the one with the headline, What Is It About Flanders? So I'm just going to play you a quick sound file, James. Just listen to this. The optimal lighting conditions for the Flemish Ardennes and the wider expanse of East and West Flanders are overcast and grey. The landscape is as colourful as any other. This is a rural place, so there are infinite shades of green and brown, dotted with warm dabs of orange roof tiles and the characteristic Belgian house red and white of bricks and pointing. But to fully appreciate the subtle combination of picturesque shire-style hillocks and copses, the monotony of a topography that barely edges above 100 metres altitude, and the ever-present threat of wind and rain that you have in this part of the world. It helps to have a filter of thick atmosphere and low clouds washing the colour out of everything and softening the edges of the landscape. So that was the first paragraph of the article, and it was read by an AI clone trained on seven seconds of my voice. I'll leave it to you and the listeners to work out how much it sounded like me. But James... For you, what is it about Flanders? What is it about this small region of a small country that speaks to you and other bike fans so profoundly? 
You know, it's always hard to put your finger on it. It is just the sort of ordinariness, the banality of this landscape. It's not Rio de Janeiro. It's not exotic. You don't go to Flanders and go, oh, wow, this is amazing in terms of the beauty of the landscape. But then there's something almost heroic when you put a bike race in it because it is so rough around the edges and because it is just so sometimes so drab. I mean, I was actually... You know, I went up there several times to photograph, and I remember, you know, I was talking with Alan Piper. He was like, ah, you're going to love it. There's good fog in the mornings right now. It's going to be nice and nice and bleak. And the day I got up there, it was the sun was shining. I was like, this is in Flanders. Wait a minute. What's going on here? How am I going to make this work, right? I do remember when the Tour de France started in Brussels in 2019, and the first, was it the first stage went over the Mur, in fact, and... It felt weird being there. I mean, the, the crowd was there. The excitement was there. You know, it looked like the mood, obviously, a church on top, large crowds, the, the hillock, cobbled road. And it felt slightly weird and discombobulating. And it's, like I said in the, in, the, in the first paragraph of my piece, Flanders looks better when it's got that kind of washed out mistiness around it. You're right. It's part of the aesthetic. So for this feature, I wrote a few short chapters just reflecting on different aspects of the country. And we sent you up to Flanders to, to take some photographs. So listeners might be interested, what, what are the technical and then the creative aspects of going up to Flanders to take photographs for a feature that hasn't been written yet? Well, you know, you and I have been working together now for the better part of a year. And we can conceive these things pretty similarly. So even though I was going up alone and photographing, you gave me carte blanche. And I went up all around the Kemmelberg and what, you know, around the Genfevelgem area, Flanders Fields. That's a very different landscape, right? And then obviously spent some time down around the Flanders course, uh, be, be it the Mura, be it the Paderberg, be it the, the, the Quaramont. And then looking constantly for just things in between that weren't just the classic climbs. I mean, just road signs, a forlorn, house or building somewhere, a crossroads. Um, because, you know, so much of the race, we, you know, the television, we focus so much on the classic climbs, but so much of the race is just around this this vast stretch of land. You know, it's still very much farmland um, in many areas, and it's very unique, but it was such a thrill just to go up there, no bike racing, no cycling to focus on, and just contemplate the landscape. It is a very particular landscape as well in the, especially in the Flemish Ardennes, which is, you know, it's not it's not the largest region. It's twenty kilometres by thirty kilometres, I think, and you know that's for that reason that the race, especially the Tour of Flanders, is, you know, zig, zigzags around those climbs. You know, they're, they're not big climbs. They're I think the highest point is one hundred and eight metres above sea level. They're barely hills at all. But at the same time, it's got this kind of charming, bucolic rural air around it because the big cities are further away the main roads kind of skirt around it so it feels quite a unique atmosphere and my main point in the feature and I think the most important point is that nobody has designed better roads for road racing than they have in this corner of Belgium and it's kind of a combination of things it's not just that landscape which is very rural with especially in spring when you get the bare trees it's very evocative um, but the roads you get these kind of smooth wide main roads not the motorways they're further afield but the, you get the main roads between the big towns you get kind of regular roads which are smaller than those which are nothing much around about them they do tend to be made of kind of concrete so it, they're quite grippy and like when you drive over them you get this kind of rhythmic slap 
of the tyres between the sections. You get quite narrow roads, which are more like farm tracks, um, which are twist and turn and zig and zag. You get the cobbled roads and you get the bergs, the hills as well. And the fact of those roads and the distinction and difference between them, the fact the races go from one to the other to the other, and you have to be in the right place on one to get to be in the right place on the next and so on and so on. So the wind always hits from a well the, the wind hits from the same direction but the road changes so much that it could be on your right side one minute and then behind you the next and then on your left the next minute and then cross tailwind cross headwind and the mix of all that makes for amazing bike racing that no other region can match i don't think you have roads that can make the same kind of bike racing anywhere else in the world and on top of that you have the regional pride of the flemish who've for one reason or another, taken bike racing as a totemic expression of what Flanders is. So I think for bike racing, it is the absolute centre of the world. There are other regions which love bike racing. There are other places where great bike races take place, but this is the centre for me. Yeah, in Belgium, it's just part of their DNA, and it's like these roads and cycling just go together and every citizen is aware of what's going on with cycling around that corner of the world and all the players that are come to those races they're household names it's it's really crazy most of us get in, involved in cycling because of say the tour de france and the sport needs this sort of mega big international event and then we get into maybe the classics these i'm always so so impressed by the guys that year in and year out are winning these classics you know it's like they're, they have so few opportunities. Everything has to go just right. These races are so hard, so brutal. The roads are so dangerous that so many things can go wrong. But year in and year out, the big name guys are always there in the finals. Uh, so what are your favorite places or climbs or spots in the Tour of Flanders? And you, you probably approach this from a very different angle from me as a photographer. Yeah, well, as a photographer, you know, you do have to get when you're covering the sport, you do have to get the action in these biggest races. So you've got to be on those major climbs. I still regret that the uh, the Mura doesn't have a more central role in the race. And it's all around now, the Quarmount and the Paderborn, really. That's where the race uh, unfolds most years. And for years, I was I was just enamored by the Quarmont because it goes up that really steep, narrow, very cobbled climb, very brutal cobbles to the little village of Quarmont, right? And then there's this little cafe, I think they call it the Palette Cafe. Like the, it's like a little paint palette or something. And that's always been the sort of historic midway point. But it was only like one year I went up and rode it with, rode these, these roads with Robbie McEwen. And we get to the Palette and I'm like grinding my way, trying to get up there and stay, stay upright. And then he looks back at me, just as we get to that sort of little false flat right there with a little, little smirk on his face. He goes, now we put it in the big ring. And I was like, oh, how did you guys do that? And then they come out of that village and it's that long, false flat, which always is, is getting hit with the wind. And that's where the race breaks up. So I was you know, enamored by the different dimensions of the, of the Quarimount. But in recent years, I found myself gravitating to the Paderberg because it's so steep and so brutal and it's so compact. And you know, so many years, the race comes down to the Paderberg. I do like those two climbs um, very much but because they're so different from each other, actually. The, the Quadamonts, like, it, it is quite draggy. There is a steep bit at the bottom, but it's very draggy. And it's, I think it's five or six-minute effort, which is very unusual in the Tour of Flanders. Usually they're quite punchy climbs. And I've always felt that this is why Fabian Cancellara was so good, especially on the new 
parkour, which is based around the Quadamont and Paterberg, because he could ride up that climb, the Quadamont, Ouda Quadamont, faster than anybody else. He could really put people in trouble. I heard an interesting thing from Andreas Clear about the Quadamont. We talked about Andreas Clear with Dan Lloyd in last week's uh, Ruler Conversations, and Clear's nickname's GPS because he knew these roads you know, better than anybody. And he said, the new style of Tour of Flanders with big beer tents on the Quadamont has changed the nature of the climb. The prevailing wind is from the southwest. Um, you used to get a terrible crosswind in the upper section of the Quadamont, which made the race even harder. But since they put the beer tents up, that's taken the wind out. So it's actually made that climb a bit less strategic and tactical and much more obvious. You just power your way up it as best you can. But what I love about it is you get to the top and you get to that wide open drag up on the main road. So you get to the top and you don't descend, you go straight up a, a, a drag and you, know, you get the best long lens shot in cycling television on that road because you can see just what the Quadrant has done to a peloton. It breaks it up into ones, twos, threes, fives, survivors, potential winners and also rams. And then the Paterberg is completely different. I love the view from the top of the Paterberg because it's you look over this flat plain and you kind of get a real sense of the fact that this is a working landscape. You can see the farms, you can hear farm machinery in the distance. It's very evocative. And the Paterberg's just a totally different test to the Quarmont. It just goes straight up, very short, very sharp. Although I think I will always prefer the old, in inverted commas, um, ending to the Tour of Flanders, the one which they used between the mid-70s and 2011, which went over the Muir and Bosberg. I do appreciate the Quadamont and Paterberg duo very much, but neither of them are my favourite climbs because I've got a soft spot for the Muir, obviously, like everybody, but my favourite climb is the Mollenberg, which is kind of just tucked away in a corner, not really near many other climbs, but it's aesthetically it's the most pleasing for me. It's kind of got an, an a gentle S-bend of cobbles. It's got a dead turn into it, which always makes it spectacular. Well, you know, it's interesting because I remember when you sent me up there, said, please get the Mullenberg because I love the Mullenberg. And I've shot the Mullenberg and I remember exactly where I would be to get the guys. And there's, they come, they hit it. It's, I think, a right-hand turn. They hit the cobbles. They go over this little bitty bridge and they kind of work their way around and then they start climbing. And I've often been kind of there at the top of that turn and got them just down over the bridge. It's a beautiful little... It's almost pastoral, you know, but it doesn't really capture the difficulty of the, of the Molenberg. But the difficulty of the Molenberg is actually not on the climb. It's just after they come off it. And just after they come off it, it's not cobbles, but it's these little narrow farm roads. And they're totally exposed. And the wind is there. And there's a big windmill right there, about like a kilometer down the road. They, come, they go right past this windmill. And you go, well, I know why there's a windmill there, because there's a lot of wind right here. That, for me, is still part of the Molenberg. The Mullenberg itself is just sort of peppers people's legs up. And then they, they, you get to that top and that's when big meat, you know, just put it in that big ring and, and just drive it and stretch it out, string it out, see if you can snap the pack apart. And it's, so it's a sort of one, two thing. The Mullenberg for me is actually two parts, part the cobble climb and then part that long expanse afterwards. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's got a complicated entry. The climb itself is not the hardest, but it just looks nice. I know, I mean, it, it is kind of pastoral and... 
looks almost like a secret little corner of Flanders. And then, like I say, you get to the top, there is no descent afterwards and it's very exposed to the wind. So for me, it's got racing relevance, but also looks, you know, aesthetically, it's it's perfect for me. I have a question. We've seen a lot of Tour of Flanders, huh? You and I. What's your favourite? 2011. Absolutely no, no question in my mind. Although the most meaningful bike race to me of all time will always be the 1989 Tour de France. Definitely my favourite one-day race ever, and maybe my favourite race ever, just on a kind of racing level, is 2011 Tour of Flanders, because it was the last to be held on the route, on, on, on the old old course. I mean, obviously, there were, there were courses before that we're talking old, as in between the mid-70s and 2011. The original course was very different, but it was the last on that course. Tactically, it was fascinating, because... Fabian Cancellar was the big favourite. He had dominated the year before. He'd gone away with Bonin and then dropped Bonin for dead on the moor. And he was at the absolute zenith of his powers, Cancellar, in 2011. Uh, but I think he got a bit overconfident. He attacked early again, but this time kind of got left hanging. And somehow BMC got seven riders together and just slowly, gradually chased him down. Cancelar had Chavanel, Sylvain Chavanel with him, who spent 100 kilometres in total away in that Tour of Flanders, so he was a big part of that story. But Cancelar got squeezed back on the moor, and then, amazingly, as he got caught on the moor, he attacked again and pulled away a group of... In the end, 12 riders coalesced, and... Philippe Gilbert attacked on the Bosberg, but he, you know, 2011 was Philippe Gilbert's magic year where he won Amstel, Liège and Flesch. And he went on the Bosberg, but he went too early. So he got chased back on the kind of winding, swooping roads off the Bosberg. And then you had this group of 12 just repeatedly attacking each other. And Balan would have a go, Gilbert had a go, Geraint Thomas had a go, Hincapi was in there, uh, Cancelar had another go, Chavanel was in there. And from nowhere... Nick Noyens, who had not been seen once throughout the whole race, he hit the front first with about... He made a little dig from that group, but Kanchlara attacks with Chavanel. Noyens knew that that was the ride to get on. The three of them went away and Noyens won the sprint. And for me, it was a masterpiece. It wasn't a, a grand champion who won, but it was the perfect example of why... In bike racing, you do not have to be the strongest rider to win the race. The cleverest rider can always have a hope of beating the strongest rider. And that's what happened on this day. And just as a further footnote, I was very interested in exploring the difference between the traditional Tour of Flanders and the modern Tour of Flanders and tradition in cycling in general and modernity. And I felt Nguyen's perfectly exemplified this. His grandparents, I think, were farmers, who would have perfectly identified with old champions like Breek Schotter and Rick van Steenbergen. But Nick Noyens wasn't a traditional Flandrien. He was a graduate in marketing and he was clever about his riding. He wasn't the tough guy who never gave up. He was the guy who knew exactly when it was time to give up and knew exactly when it was time to sit in and knew exactly when it was the time to go. And that's why this race resonated so much. In fact, it resonated so much for me. I wrote a whole book about that one race. One of my favorite years would be the uh, the Jackie Durand year in 1992. I'm, and I'm friends with Jackie. And actually, uh, the 20 year anniversary, I, I went up uh, and celebrated with him and, and we we're hanging out. He's telling the old war stories. And he just broke that race totally down. 
I mean, he was dead on arrival at one point because he couldn't get his team car up there and couldn't get any food. And he was on the edge of bonking. Finally, his team car gets there and he's back on. And finally, he said at one point, like he's over the Bosberg and all of a sudden, and his, his, this whole time, this is way before radios, right? So if your team car is not there, you don't quite know where you're at. You don't quite know where the groups are behind you. And at one point he said it was Eddie Merrickson himself, who may have been the race director, who said, you know, came up, patted, pat, you know, slapped his hand on the window, rolled it down, said, good race, you're going to win Flanders, you know, kid, good, good ride. And he was like a neo-pro. It was his second year as a pro. Second year pro wins Flanders. In the modern race, I really loved the one where Gilbert won. Still today, because there was that crash on the Quarmont with Sagan and taking down Van Arvermont. And they were chasing it. They were down to like 30, 40 seconds or 30 seconds. And look, maybe they're going to catch him. But I've talked to Gilbert about that. And, you know, you cannot say, oh, I would have beat Philippe Gilbert when he had a 30-second advantage going into the last climb. You can't say that. Gilbert was the winningest classics rider in, in the peloton until he retired. And he has race science down. And he was like, no, I still had just enough juice to make that last acceleration. I know from being in that chase group, that last 30, you can bring it down to 30 seconds is easy. Bring it down to 20 is easy. But when you got no more teammates around you, who's one of the big favorites are gonna make that last dig, perhaps sacrifice their own chances to catch you. That's where I knew I was in control. Yeah, in cycling, the winner is always right. So talking about favourite editions of the Ronde, another feature we've got in the new magazine is how I won the Tour of Flanders, in which we asked seven different Ronde winners about their victories. And we interviewed Lizzie Diagnan, Tom Bowenen, Johan Museo, Grace Verbecker, Eric van der Aarden, Ina Joko Teusenberg and Nick Noyens about their wins. And so we're going to run a few clips from the interviews. And first up, we've got Nick Noyens because he won my favourite Tour of Flanders. And Noyens was fascinating about how he worked the 12-man group which came together at the end. I think there were 12 or 13 riders. Who's in the teams? Who gets along with who? And blah, blah, blah. So, and, and Shalara was strong. And I remember those days was like two groups. We were splitting up like only 30 meters. And the moment that Kanchalara made his move to the first group, I knew I had to follow. Yeah. Because once you're 30 meters behind a guy like him, you know, it was very, very difficult to come back. And actually, he made his move immediately after he went through the first group. And uh, the rest is history. Were you waiting for something to happen or planning something to happen or hoping for something to happen in that group? I, I think I, I tried before already one or two times. Just like it's not a move where you got an all-in move, but like trying to feel like, okay, again, who is reacting and it's always a matter of feeling how the how the spirit is at that moment in in, in that front group. Yeah. Is it always the same guy that reacting out it? And and actually, when you look at the races, one moment you see it. in the, the first attacks, most of the time people react immediately because they're all fresh. The second time, third time, but the tenth time, uh, it's, they start to think like, hmm. If I go again, if I close it again, and there's a counter, I'm not in. So the longer it takes, the more people start to think, and the more dangerous it, it gets. And it gets, I think. But it's also a matter of willing to win. You need balls because you have to play the game, in my opinion, and you're 
you have to be ready to lose too because if you want really want to to win everybody can see it and they give you all the work Grace Verbecker won the Tour of Flanders in 2010 she comes from Rosela just 25 miles from the Flemish Ardennes and she now works as a teacher and an occasional DS for Lotto she may not have been a favourite for the race but she understood perfectly both her strengths and those of her rivals. We may be waxing lyrical at the moment about riders attacking in the 2023 season and taking advantage of all the politics of the chasing group as if it's some kind of new thing. Well, actually, Grace Verbecker did it in 2010. I was certainly not a sprinter, so uh, I have to make races hard to go in the attack, and I uh, enjoyed the, the game of it, to gamble in the end, in the final, and... Uh, I always wanted to go in an escape. <laughs> I did some good good time trials because the shape was there, but I was not a specialist in it. I liked the, the races where you have the, the short uh, climbs, uh, cobblestones, like here yeah, you have Ronde van Vlaanderen, Omloop, such races. I like it because uh, there were uh, races where the back of the peloton, they dropped. There's a... Uh, yeah, the survival races. Actually, the whole year, I did some good results later on the season. But the season started already very good with Omloop. And I had a very good winter. I ended my season 2009 with a good result on the world champion. I was ninth, so it gave me a good motivation during that winter. And uh, I had a good training camp before... Uh, the race start of the season started 2010. Yeah, I was ready for it. So a good feeling, mentally, physical. I was ready for it. I was a little bit the underdog. So I did already some good results, but I was not the top favorite for it. But uh, I, uh, yeah, I played with the underdog role and I attacked uh, on 50k before the finish. Of the girls, they say, "Oh, it's too early." <laughs> but I got one rider with me, Andre Visser. Yeah. And with the two, we have immediately a, a big gap. I think almost two minutes from Muir. I went solo. Then I had one minute on the favorites who started their race, and I was able to hold them up to the finish line. Ten seconds left. <laughs> Tom Boonen won three tours of Flanders. And though he was hugely physically gifted, with both massive endurance and a very fast sprint, he also understood the race enough to know that it's not the energy you spend that wins bike races, it's the energy you save. Flanders is a fighting race, it's like a boxing game, you have to fight for every corner, fight for every climb, fight on top of the climb, fight for the descent, fight. So there's constant fighting going on and I remember from when I was still riding, like the first 100 k's were, were a nightmare for me because I wanted to pass by this 100 k's as fast as possible yeah, to get. You're full as well, aren't you? Yeah, you're full, and it's the most dangerous part of the race for me because you want to save energy. So you're trying to stay away from the front of the race, be in the belly of the peloton or in the back a little bit, and, and that's very dangerous. As soon as you hit the more technical part of the race, the last 150 k's or something like that. That's where you get to the front and start racing technically and then start trying to maximize everything and then save as much energy as possible, but by doing attacks or by doing lead-outs to a, to a corner or a certain climb. But then you're in the action and then the danger gets a little bit less presence. But um, 
Yeah, it's a it's a race where you're fighting all the time with yourself because you have to get to the front and one position can make a difference in Tour of Flanders. Yeah. And one position at 100 case from the finish line doesn't seem much, but sometimes there's a gap being dropped and you lose 10, 15, 20 seconds, you have to close the gap and it starts repeating, you know? And so every every decision you make to save yourself can lose you the race. And and being on top of that game, like spending just enough energy to stay in front, to save energy, yeah. to have enough energy in the final. And that's yeah. the most difficult thing mentally to yeah. do that. And how do you know you're making the right decision? You never do. You only do when you cross the finish line and you won the race. Similarly to Boonen, Johan Museo was the perfect physical specimen for the Tour of Flanders. And maybe its most successful rider, with three wins, three second places and two thirds. But he was conscious of the fact that Rond winners are not made. They develop step by step. Huh. How you win the Tour of Flanders, that's a long story. That starts already in the beginning when you are young and your dreams and you think about uh, before I was a cyclocross man, so that was already a starter to win uh, the Tour of Flanders and also Roubaix. Um, but you don't know that you will become a professional rider and you don't know that you will be win three times Tour of Flanders. So the first time that you're at the podium, then you realize well, someday I can win. And then you do some more training for it, specific training, small intervals, long distance training, cobblestones, and that kind of things that you need for, uh, for Tour of Flanders. But to be honest, I think you, you will be born as a Tour of Flanders winner or a Tour of France winner or a, a climber, a TTT rider. So mm, my body was for a classic, a sprint classic rider. So I, I was a sprinter, but I wasn't fast enough to be a sprinter like Mark Cavendish. But I have explosion, a short explosion on the power. And that's what you need for, uh, for Flanders. And I have also a big engine. So that you need also for Flanders. So I don't kill if after 200k, uh, I was better than the others after 200. So yeah, I was also good on the cobblestones. I was bad in bad condition weather. So I have all the elements to, to win Tour of Flanders and that you make a winner of Tour of Flanders. So I was three time winner, three times third, three times third, 15 times top 10. So uh, that means something. It's difficult to say what you have to do for uh, to be a Tour of Flanders winner. It starts if mom and daddy make you and if you're coming out and if they say, okay, that can be a rider and then you will be a climber, a sprinter or a classic rider. And now you have also riders like Wout van Aert, they can do everything. They are a classic rider, they are a sprinter, they are a climber, they can do everything. So I was a classic rider and I want to be always to come better and better and what I was best. So that's, that's also difficult if you can do everything because then you have to work for everything. Um, I have just working 10 years for uh, to be a, a good spring classic rider. So lastly, I just want to give some public credit to the person who actually makes Rouleau as beautiful as it is. And that's our art editor, Enrique Adel. Every cover of Rouleau is an event. And I, I love the concept of this edition's cover. The, the shade of it is the light blue of the Belgian cycling kit. And there's a classical bust, obviously 
linked to the classics, but wearing a casquette in the same light blue as the, the rest of the cover. And it's a very cool cover, especially in contrast to the warmth of the, the body issue, which we had um, in the last edition. There's just that little splash of primary colours with the red, yellow and black of the Belgian flag on the casquette. And Enrique's pulled wonders with that cover. I, I loved it. He makes Rulo beautiful and all his layouts just make me punch the air, really. From the moment he presented that, you know, he sends it, what do you think of this guy? And we're just like, yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, wow. It was just instant. The Roman, you know, bust with the cycling cap on top of it and the beautiful bag. I mean, it's so classy. It is, it just, it oozes cycling culture, cycling history, cycling, DNA of cycling. And Enrique is like, He's the guy who has that magic wand that brings our ideas to life. We've also got interviews with Leanne Lippert and Emmanuel Erviti in the mag, and found the Leanne Lippert interview very interesting. It was Rachel Jarry, our staff writer, did that one. And Rachel understands bike racing very well because she did it herself at a very high level. And she also lived in Belgium for a period as well. So she knows what she's talking about. And Leanne Lippert came because a very, very interesting rider who is just on the cusp of a big victory, uh, signed with Movistar this year, and I'm, I'm just waiting for her to win a, win a big race. Stan Coolen, the photographer, went to the very last Stadsplatz Herardsbergen, which is a, a Kermess held in Gerardsbergen. One of the oldest races in Belgium. It actually predates the Tour of Flanders, but sadly, the 2022 edition was very last. We've got your colour feature, James, from the Ardèche weekend, and... René Magritte also makes an appearance in the magazine with the Art Cycle feature, and that was your feature, James. René Magritte's a, he's a Walloon rather than a Flamand, but he was from Lessines, um, the same town as Claude Quiquelion, who has himself in the Flanders piece, so it just shows how everything is linked eventually. Now, we've got a beautiful feature from Monte Rosa and much, much more. So that is the magazine. It's out this week. Listeners of Ruler Conversations can get 15% off our regular subscription price by going to ruler.cc, hitting the subscribe button and entering the code PODCAST15. And that's PODCAST15. James, enjoy the rest of your stay in the Caribbean. We will see you back for Paris-Roubaix, I believe. That's all from us. Next up, Dan Cavallari and Tom Hargreaves talk Zwift Hubs and Pain Caves. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 118, the classics issue. The classics are the beating heart of world cycling. These grippy, tough, atmospheric races in the chilly north of a European spring are full of character and excitement. Yes, the Tour de France is colourful and glamorous, but the classics are real life, a kitchen sink drama compared to the operatic grandeur of the tour and Giro d'Italia. We're celebrating the classics in Rouleau 118. The magazine features an exclusive interview with Eritrean rider Binyam Germay. Germay is one of cycling's most prominent rising stars. He won Gent-Wevelgem and a stage in the Giro d'Italia last year, and he tells us he is aiming even higher this year. But results aside, as the most successful black African rider the sport has yet seen, Guillermet is smashing down barriers and paving the way for many more to follow. Also in Ruler 118, interviews with Movistar's new signing Leanne Lippert and Spanish classic stalwart Emmanuel Erviti, 
who has ridden more editions of Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders than any other current pro. How do you win the Tour of Flanders? Seven different champions, including Lizzie Dignan, Tom Boonen and Johan Museo, tell us how they achieved victory in the Ronde. And we've taken a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture and visited the best cycling bars in Flanders. Rulo 118 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you from Colorado here in the United States. And it is that time of year. I keep saying it. Uh, it's it, Fall hit us early and, uh, and hard this year. We've already gotten a lot of snow here. And, you know, that means trainer time for a lot of us. And that means trainer time for me. And if you're like me, within the last few years, part of your winter regimen has been hopping on the trainer to spin away on Zwift. Now, in the past, that meant assembling whatever hardware you could afford or, or get your hands on and pairing it to Zwift and pairing it to the, the your computer and, and assembling sort of your own little, people like to call it the pain cave, where you sweat it out in the winter months. But more recently, Zwift uh, came out with its own trainer, its own hardware called the Zwift Hub. And it's yet another entry into the market with, with hardware, but there's, there's a few uh, things that set it apart, the least of which is its price. It definitely undercuts pretty much anything else out there uh, at this level of hardware. It, uh, it costs just 500 US dollars, which is uh, about equivalent in the UK. And so I wanted to get a sense of what makes the Zwift Hub different or better or uh, more interesting than any other offering that was out there and why now was the right time for Zwift to offer it and how they got it so inexpensive if it's still a top of the line piece of equipment. So let's go go right to the heart of Zwift to get those answers. On the line today, I've got Tom Hargreaves, the Associate Director of Connected Products Marketing at Zwift. Tom, how's it going? Hey, Dan. I'm, uh, I'm very well. How are you? I'm well. Thanks Thanks for taking some time to explain uh, some of the new bits about uh, the hub, because I think it's a really exciting development for anybody who's in the indoor cycling space at this point. I think one of the biggest problems with indoor cycling in the last several years since Zwift sort of came along and made it a thing is that it's been cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So before we before we get too deep into things, give me a brief rundown of the actual hardware. What makes the Zwift Hub unique and different from anything else that was already on the market, aside from the price, of course? Okay, sure. So at its core, Zwift Hub is a smart trainer. I think many of your listeners will know what a smart trainer is. It's a direct drive smart trainer. You take off the back wheel on your bike, you put the bike directly onto the cassette that's on the trainer, and you will get adjustable resistance and a built-in power meter. And those features that are core to what a smart trainer is, what makes it different and the things you really wanted to focus on with Zwift Hub really is two things, which is that if you can meet that threshold of it being a great bit of equipment, it being a you know a solid smart trainer, we then also need it to be at a great price point and be as easy as possible to get on it. And those are the two things we focused on. So looking at price, as you mentioned, it's $499 or euros and £449 in the, in the UK. We know that cost is prohibitive to a lot of people. So removing that barrier or lessening it to, as, to a, a greater degree as we could was, was hugely important to us, quite simply because a lower price point 
enables more people who would not otherwise have bought a smart trainer to get you know get into indoor riding get onto Zwift the second half of that then because what what you can't do is create a low price product and just cut corners and compromise elsewhere the other half of that story is is ease so part of that is being able to get everything you need to Zwift at Zwift.com you know big part of that is removing the paradox choice and then there is a huge amount of choice out there when it comes to trainers whether they be direct drive or wheel on or smart trainers dumb trainers you know each of those categories in its own right has a ton of options from a ton of manufacturers and that does mean that there's an amazing opportunity out there for people to find the training that's right for them for those who maybe aren't that technically knowledgeable or don't want to spend the time or effort investing in finding out truly which product is best for them that can be a can be a deterrent and we wanted to remove that in, in one sense just simply by offering a smart training being able to come to zip.com buy a trainer, get your subscription, the trainer arrives in the post and off you go, you're Zwifting. There are then other things that come with that. So including a cassette and being able to pick the cassette that you need and that coming pre-installed on the trainer. You know, again, it's a way of offering better value for money because that cassette is included in the price, but also making it easier for anyone who wants to get into indoor riding, essentially. So we didn't want to compromise things like that, compromise ease because of the price point we wanted to hit. And then the last point of that ease category is making the unboxing, the setup, making that as intuitive as possible. So a lot of thought went into things, simple things, but things you you won't find on other trainers, certainly not at this price point. So things like colored legs. So it's really clear which way around the legs go front and back and which way around they go left left to right. So you, it's very, very difficult to muck that up. And if you do muck that up, you, know, you, you get colored indications on the product and make it really clear. There's adapter cards because cycling is not the simplest of endeavors at times with the, the different adapter widths and, and types of adapters, whether that be through axle or quick release. So we put cards in the box that allow you to identify which adapter standard your bike has and the width of your dropout so you know which adapters and which way around they need to go on the product. And that's all included. And that all goes along with you know a well thought out and well produced quick start guide and manual and setup video. So we we put a lot of care and effort into those things because we know that they matter a lot to people that buy products and having a great experience getting set up enables you to get onto Zwift quicker than easier than you would have done previously. So it's those two things. It's price and it's ease. Importantly, it's not compromising on one to um, satisfy the, the other because they're both super important. So now I want to back up a little bit for people who maybe are not already in the smart trainer game. Why did Zwift choose a direct drive trainer as its first offering? I think I know the answer to this question, but I think it's important for listeners to know why it's important to take off the rear wheel and and connect directly to the trainer that way. What makes a direct drive trainer the, the best option? Put simply, and it's a great question, by the way, because as I just mentioned, there are a lot of options out there. There are you can get wheel on trainer. You can get a, a very simple wheel on trainer very cheaply. You'll find a lot of them on on secondhand websites in double digit figures. For us, if if we're going to sell a product and it's going to be a product that you use with the Swift software, which is the goal of selling a, a smart trainer, is that that unlocks the Swift experience. It has to unlock it at a level of quality that that we believe is is good enough. It's going to do justice to how Zwift can be experienced and also what you can do in, in the Zwift game. So connecting your bike directly to the, the cassette and the motor that's in a smart trainer gives you a much better ride feel. So it feels more like riding outdoors. You also unlock 
a smart resistance. So it feels like you're riding up and down hills as you go up and down those hills in game. It gets easier. It gets harder. You have to get out the saddle to ride up steep gradients because the, the trainer is emulating those real life gradients that you, you experience outdoors. And that all plays a part in the experience of Zwifting. And then there's things like training plans and the power meter that's built into the product. Training with power is what we think is also important. It's how your avatar moves in game. It's it's the, the main controlling factor of, of what it is to Zwift these days. So quite simply, it's it's hitting a quality threshold when it comes to actually experiencing Zwift that, that we think is is good enough. So I guess my next question, we're going to talk about connectivity in a minute, because I think a lot of folks who have experienced the Zwift platform and, and connecting smart trainers can probably attest to having some story about how, man, it was it was such a pain to get this, that, and the other thing connected. So we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we talk about that, I, I think it's important to talk about the price point that Zwift was able to hit here uh, because it does undercut pretty much all of the competition. How was Zwift uh, able to go about building a reliable and solid trainer that hit a price point others haven't been able to do? It's Yeah, another great question. I mean, so firstly, we, we worked with an existing product on the market called the Jet Black Vault, and we worked with Jet Black, the manufacturer, as a, as a partner on the product. You know, that's that's no secret. They had a trainer. It was well-received and positively re- reviewed as a, as a great product, a great price point. We we have then taken that price point low with this product. We kind of want to make it clear that we, we didn't do that by just releasing a loss leader. We are making a profit margin on each Swift Hub unit that, that we sell, but we have certainly squeezed that margin. And we've done that for the reason that we know the price is a, is a huge factor in whether people decide to buy a smart trainer or that they don't. So squeezing that extra you know, 50, 100, whatever it is, bucks out of that and putting that back into the hands of the consumer, for us, that was very, very important to do. In terms of then how we released at that price point, but ensured it was still a reliable, solid bit of kit, as I said, we worked with Jet Black, so we knew they had a product that was good, but you can't just take that, start manufacturing it in far higher quantities and not go through all the due diligence you need to alongside that. So a lot of testing went into uh, ensuring that it met quality thresholds from an accuracy standpoint, from a durability standpoint, from a manufacturing tolerances. You know, there's a, a lot of people that work in our connected products team that make hardware and it was their job to essentially make sure this product was as good as it could be. And that included things like hiring full-time test riders. So we have people whose job it is literally to come to work at Zwift each day, ride equipment, log the miles they're doing, feedback on the product developments that are being made. Uh, and, and that's their day-to-day job. I'm actually hugely jealous of those guys because it's, it's an awesome job. But it's amazing to have them because you need people to come in, ride the product for most of the day, almost every day of the week and provide feedback to ensure that uh, what you're then going to sell and people are going to put in their homes is is as good as you say it is. So you have the, the human element. We've also got like test rigs set up to do things that humans can't do, like simulate many years of use on the product and ensure that, you know, one, two, three years down the line, it's still going to be a good bit of kit. A lot of time and effort and money was has been spent on making sure that it hits that price point, but it's also a great bit of kit and will continue being a great bit of kit for, for years down the line if you if you choose to purchase it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, let's go back to what I mentioned earlier. And, and I speak from experience here when I say I've had, you know, that nightmare scenario of just trying to, to pair things and, and get it going before I, I hit my Zwift session. Does the Zwift Hub kind of up the connectivity reliability here or the ease of use of, of the trainer? Or is it still 
this is the same sort of setup where you have to go to that pairing screen in Zwift and wait for the Bluetooth or the Amp Plus to kick in. Can it do anything that other trainers can't do to improve that experience? Yeah. So it, there are some nice bells and whistles on the product you won't find on all other smart trainers, but fundamentally it's still a wireless, either Amp Plus or BLE Bluetooth smart trainer. So it's not, this isn't the product that is going to be unlocking a hardwired connection from your trainer to your, to your computer. And there's a really simple reason why it isn't that in is because for us, cost is a more important factor in this product than adding on those bells and whistles, which very quickly add up costs. You know, if this thing was six, seven, 800 bucks, then sure, you could add those things in and, and, you know, you provide people a great experience, but then you vastly diminish the number of people who are going to um, find it an, an affordable product to, to buy. So it doesn't change the need to use either AMP Plus or Bluetooth. But as I said, there are some nice additional features on the product, which you don't find on all smart trainers. So one is it does have a Bluetooth bridge built into it. And that Bluetooth bridge can be used to connect a heart rate monitor to the trainer and the trainer then broadcasts the data from the trainer and the heart rate data onto the device. This is super helpful if you use Apple TV, which has a limited number of Bluetooth connections. So you can connect the heart rate monitor and send that information all off via the trainer in a single Bluetooth connection, not you know compromising that if you need to pair other things to, to Apple TV. It's also really handy if you've got an AMP Plus heart rate monitor. I know some of us probably still have those. And if you're using like an iPad, which is Bluetooth, but your heart rate monitor is AMP Plus, you can connect the AMP Plus heart rate monitor to the trainer and off it goes via Bluetooth to, to the iPad. So you don't have to buy a brand new heart rate monitor if you want to if you want to use that with a Bluetooth device. So that's a nice feature to have. Um, on the way, we've also got auto calibration. So the idea of needing to do a spin down each time you use the trainer, that, that will also go away. That's that's coming in a matter of weeks and it will be via a software update. So everyone who's already got a Zwift Hub as well as those who buy it in the future will, will unlock that new feature. So yeah, there's some, there's some nice things in there on top because you won't find all of those things on every smart trainer that's out there on the market today. Tom, one of the selling points on the website for the Zwift Hub is the power meter. Can you tell me a little bit about the power meter that's built into the Zwift Hub and why, I mean, the, the website calls it a game changer. What does it do differently or better than its competition and, and how did Zwift accomplish that? Sure. So there's, there's a bit of nuance there because our website, when it talks around the power meter that's built into Zwift Hub, talks around training with power being a game changer. And this maybe gives a clue to the type of person we expect to be buying Swift Hub, which is we believe in in most cases people that don't already have a power meter on their bike and are therefore not training with power or haven't trained with with power before. So we believe training with power is is a game changer. It makes a big difference in terms of you know, racing, training plans, all that kind of stuff you can do on Swift. And yeah, as I said, the, the reason we use that type of language is. On our website, we want to make it really clear what Zwift Hub is and also just kind of what a smart trainer is. We didn't want to come out and say, Zwift Hub's a smart trainer, assume that everyone knows what a smart trainer is and the, the kind of core features that I think a lot of people who probably listeners of, of this podcast or people who are kind of into cycling, they'll, they'll know that. They'll know they, they take the rear wheel off their bike, they put the frame on it, it's a direct drive, it's got adjustable resistance, it's got Bluetooth, it's wireless, it's got a power meter built in, but 
we didn't want to assume, and, and we certainly we believe that a fair chunk of people don't necessarily know that information. So one of the, the things we wanted to do on the website is just break it down in really simple terms. If you get Zwift Hub and you're getting that to unlock the Zwift experience, what is it you're getting? And one of those things is a, is a power meter. And, and yeah, it's about offering people who may not be training with power currently, may not have a power meter in their bike, the opportunity to get that as part of a smart trainer and then start incorporating that into their indoor training. Okay. So it is generally an integrated power meter. It's not that that's revolutionary. It's that, that there is a power meter and you can train with that power. That's what's more of a game changer. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Now with everything that's integrated into the hub, you know, there are still people out there who are using other pieces of componentry that's from different ecosystems. And, you know, we all know that, you know, there's been competitors in this space for a long time. Can you use the Zwift hub with non-Zwift front wheel accessories like the Wahoo kicker climb, or I know Elite's got the, uh, what the one that allows you to use your wheel, uh, turn your wheel. Can you use those things? Is there anything that uh, consumers should be wary of with using those types of things with the Zwift hub? Yeah, it's a good thing to to talk about because with that type of product specifically, they're not compatible with Zwift Hub. The reason for that is when you have a front wheel riser uh, that you use on your on your bike or your frame when you're training indoors, to enable that, you need the rear axle on the smart trainer that you're using with that to rotate. If not, then your bike is pivoting up and down, but the axle of the smart trainer that's you know locked your back dropouts in place is not moving and that's going to cause damage to the dropouts of your of your frame so the rear axle on Zwift Hub currently doesn't rotate so because of that kind of mechanical reason you wouldn't be able to use it in conjunction with something like a front wheel riser I think the reason for that and I, I probably bored of me saying this for now is, is because we're, we're looking at the, the price point you are for Zwift Hub and it's important for us to hit that price point. And this would be in that category of like bells and whistles. We didn't want to add onto the product that would incrementally increase that price. If you were to think about it, people who currently have that equipment, if you've currently got a, a front wheel rise, by virtue of having that, you've already got a smart trainer. So you're probably, you're probably not looking to purchase Zwift Hub to use in partnership with a front wheel riser because you've probably already got a smart trainer. You're Hopefully you're already on Swift or you're on a, a competitor platform. You're either way you're indoor riding, um, and, and therefore it's probably not a, a solution that we think many people are looking for when they're purchasing Swift Hub. At least in today's environment, you know, I wouldn't rule us out you know, potentially releasing all of that in the, in the future as well. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting too that you know there's actually there's other brands of trainers that you have to be just as careful with making sure that that rear axle pivots. Uh, if you're going to use things like the kicker climb or something like that, it's not just Zwift that has that same construction. So you need to be very careful when you're choosing that sort of thing anyway. And is Zwift going to expand its hardware offerings in the future, in the near future to offer these sorts of front wheel components or any other types of uh, equipment that would make it uh, a better experience for people to get on Zwift and start Zwifting quickly and easily uh, and effectively? So the short answer there is yes. Zwift Hub isn't the only piece of equipment we're working on or it certainly isn't intended to be the only piece of equipment that Zwift as a brand ever ever launches I'm sure you can understand that I'm you know I'm not able to talk specifically about products that are kind of in the works at the moment but I don't want to completely dodge this question and just say yes but I'm not going to tell you anything and and instead I would maybe just give a bit of insight into how we think about hardware and maybe that's helpful people can just let their imagination run or maybe just come to maybe obvious conclusions potentially about 
about what might be next for us based on that information. And I will say this is how we think about it from a, like a product marketing perspective. So we think about it in two ways. So enabling hardware and enhancing hardware. And that's enabling or enhancing the Zwift experience. So typically that's that software that is that is using Zwift and Zwifting and, and ride, riding indoors. So an example of that with Zwift Hub, you know, primarily that is enabling hardware. So it enables people to get on Zwift more easily than they have done before. And to do that because of the reasons we've, we've just spoken about, so price and, and ease and all that kind of good stuff. What's next for us is, is to, as I said, I can't talk about anything too specifically, but, but working on equipment that will either uh, continue to enable more people to get onto Zwift or into indoor riding or to enhance the Zwift experience. I'm going to ask you more questions that you might have to dance around a little bit, <laughs> but you know, will some of this equipment precipitate any sort of changes to the Zwift software, the Zwift virtual environment? I mean, are we are we in for a treat of, of different worlds, different capabilities in the software itself? Yes, is definitely the short answer to that question again. I need to be very careful what I say here because I, I don't want to get myself into, <laughs> into trouble. But Zwift as a platform is continually evolving. And hopefully everyone who's on the platform sees that and everyone who is maybe thinking about getting onto Zwift can, can hopefully see that too. There's always new maps coming out. There's often new features coming out in the game and that's going to continue to be the case. You know, brands like Zwift can't just stand still and say dust your hands off and say well we've made a great product here let's just uh, let that run you have to keep developing and innovating and adding new new features and we will continue to do that and maybe just to go back to what i just said about enhancing and enabling products i think both of those things enhancing especially is going to be a really strong partnership between hardware and software working together uh, it's, it's the same with the enhancing stuff as well. And I use like a fairly poor analogy internally, but one that I talk about all the time, which is that buying a Swift Hub, again, is the example I can talk about. Buying that is not like just buying an inanimate object or a, a, something like a toaster. Like you, you buy a toaster to make toast. It's a very kind of linear experience. You walk out each morning, you put the bread in, you get the toast out, all good. Buying Swift Hub, you're, you're doing that to unlock the Swift experience. And there's so much more to that beyond the equipment so much of it is not the equipment to be to be honest you're getting the workouts like the training plans the races the group rides the social experience so there's so much to it and it's almost if all goes well to a certain degree i know that i'm in some ways doing myself out of a job here working on connected products marketing but in so much of it is the, the if we do it really well the hardware is almost not even noticed it's just you, you flow past that and you get into what really matters which is having a great ride in, indoors i guess maybe to go back to the question yes it will be to continually evolve what it is to zwift and develop it and make, you know continue to make it a great indoor riding experience sure and it has a benefit to the rider i mean the price is obviously key but it's also important to note that this presumably will get more people on zwift so i think for for the company itself it sort of eliminates a barrier as well and so that means to me that there's other things that maybe I don't understand about the hub and its integration into the Zwift ecosystem. Like what, what is it from Zwift's perspective that listeners should know about that we haven't already talked about? What are the secrets of the Zwift hub and the experience that they can look at this and say, this is a trainer for me, not just because of the price, but also because of the experience it's going to open up. Yeah. There's not, there's not really much secret to it, to be honest. It's a very 
kind of simple proposition. There's not a secret here. We wanted to make it really simple and clear to understand, which is that it's it's an affordable smart trainer that's easy to set up that unlocks the full Zwift experience. Maybe the one thing to add to that is, and it, by virtue of just calling it a smart trainer, you maybe covered this off, but it unlocks that experience on, on your bike. So if you've got a bike and you, you're thinking about getting into Zwift this, this winter as the, the nights draw long and cold and, and wet, then my kind of answer to that would be, well, this is an affordable bit of kit. It's easy to set up and unlocks the full Zwift experience. And whilst there's a few bells and whistles on top of that in terms of features and, and functionality, we we certainly really hope that people find that super easy to understand. And if 499 or 449, depending on what territory you're in, is, is to you an affordable price point, and we're certainly not assuming it, it is, it's still a fair chunk of money. It's still still up there in terms of what you would otherwise spend on a, on a household appliance or, or likewise that aside if you're looking to ride indoors then we certainly hope this product is is for you and it will get you onto that kind of fantastic swift experiences easily and as affordably as possible mm -hmm. and where can people buy the zwift hub is it just on the website or is it uh, in stores as well it's just swift.com and maybe from a business perspective that's something worth just quickly touching on I guess it's that's another reason how we can hit the price point we, we can with that product is we are a direct consumer business. We've always been that way from a software perspective, which is somewhat obvious, but from a hardware perspective, if you want to buy Zwift Hub, you, you can't find it at other retailers. It is only at Zwift.com. And then without that middle person, there's obviously cost savings to be made, but it also quite importantly for us means we can manage that full full journey, basically. So we manage the the warehouse, the distribution, the customer service. So if, you know, look after that full experience. So if you know, when you place that order, we can make sure it goes out the door as quick as possible and is, is received with you at home as quick as possible, often next day. And again, that's another reason why that kind of owning that experience and making it as good as possible is also important to us. Mm -hmm. So for those of you listening, I actually just saw a Zwift Hub in person for the first time just a couple of days ago, and uh, it's quite stable. It's quite nice. It feels like a well-built piece of equipment, uh, and I'm excited to get on one and actually try it compared to all the other trainers that I have used in my my long tenure testing gear. So I'm, I'm excited for it. To me, anything that lowers the barrier of entry for people to get on bicycles, I'm all for. Tom, thanks for joining me today. And uh, for those of you listening, if you have questions about the Zwift Hub or about any of the things we cover here on the Ruler Tech podcast, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at SlowGuyFastRide or on Instagram at SlowGuyOnTheFastRide. And of course, you can reach out to at Ruler Magazine on any of the social media worlds that you lurk in. And uh, Tom, thank you for joining me today today. I appreciate it. And it was a wonderful chat with you. And thanks for sharing your insight on the Zwift Hub. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. And for those of you listening, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Ruler Magazine podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen.